You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City. And this is Prashant Parmaswaran from Washington, D.C. Thanks for joining me, Prashant. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Um, and I'm looking forward to revisiting the South China Sea with you on this podcast. It really feels like we haven't done that in a while. But um, we we talked about it a little bit on our recent episode where we discussed Rodrigo Duterte's first year in office, uh, specifically in the context of Duterte being a major player in events in the South China Sea over the past year. Uh, but on this podcast, I want to take a step back and just talk more broadly uh, and really just kind of, you know, take a take a measure of the temperature in the South China Sea a year after, just a little over a year after the July 12, 2016 ruling by a five-judge tribunal at The Hague um, at the Permanent Court of Arbitration um, in the case filed by the Philippines in 2013 against China over, um, over its behavior in the South China Sea and more specifically about maritime entitlements. Uh, so before we get into a conversation, I'm just going to very quickly just rehash what that um, ruling found last year, um, since uh, both you and I looked at that quite closely, and I think we said this on the last podcast, but everybody thought that this would be a kind of game-changing moment in the South China Sea um, after after the findings came out. So uh, effectively, the court, um, uh, the tribunal, rather found um, China's. This is the big the big finding was that China's nine dash claim based around historic rights, sovereign rights, and jurisdiction in the South China Sea was just not in compliance or not compatible with the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, which was the treaty that both countries had signed and ratified that was the basis for the arbitration. Um, second, the tribunal found that none of the um, features, the quote-unquote islands in the South China Sea, were actually islands as legally defined by UNCLOS. That matters because none of these features are entitled to a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, which would have really been the most maximal way of China potentially extending its sovereignty claims in the South China Sea, even though it wouldn't quite give it as much as the nine dash line claims. And I should also note that this tribunal wasn't adjudicating on matters of sovereignty. Um, it was adjudicating simply on narrower questions of the status of features, maritime entitlements, um, etc. Um, so uh, among the features that were under consideration were China's um, seven artificial islands. Um, so the tribunal ended up determining the status of many of these features. Um, Cordron Reef, Fiery Cross Reef, Gavin Reef North, Johnson Reef, McKinnon Reef, um, and Scarborough Shoal, which is in a separate area, were uh, found to be rocks and only entitled to a 12 nautical mile territorial sea. The tribunal also found that Gavin Reef South, Hughes Reef, Mischief Reef, Second Thomas Shoal, and Subi Reef were low tide elevations and had no entitlement whatsoever. Uh, so China has artificial islands on a lot of these features, um, and that has kind of been the focus of several challenges by the United States in particular that we'll talk on this podcast through its freedom of navigation operations. Um, so apart from that, uh, you know, I'm just going to kind of rush through some of the other findings. This was a 500-page legal document that really went into some detail, but more broadly, the arbitral tribunal also found, um, you know, the behavior of Chinese maritime law enforcement vessels to be uh, in contravention of both UNCLOS and um international regulations on preventing collisions at sea. Um, and it also chastised China for it, the environmental consequences of its actions in the South China Sea, among other results. But, you know, the broad takeaway was that China was effectively found to be in violation of international law uh, through its behavior and actions in the South China Sea last year. Um, but, you know, a year on Prashant, my question is, um, based on what we've seen, has China, quote unquote, won in the South China Sea? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, 
that's sort of the question that's lingering behind everybody's minds because uh, after the tribunal, um, the implication from the ruling was that this was a major loss from China, for China more so than uh, most people even thought uh, and believed. Um, and I think it's fair to say a year on, the Chinese have ended up losing much less uh, than, than we thought they actually did. Um, that's due to a series of different things. One is, you know, the election of Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines, which we talked a little bit about uh, last week uh, as well. Um, and that, you know, which occurred before the ruling, um, really has uh, limited the extent to which this ruling has actually mattered because the Philippines, who filed the case against China, now is the one that's downplaying the case and President Duterte is sort of seeking a better relationship with China. That's allowed China to then say, well, you know, we, we appreciate that this ruling was uh, sort of promulgated. We don't accept the findings of the ruling and we're in the process of figuring out things with the Philippines. So external parties like the United States and Japan, please don't prevent us from doing that. And by the way, we're also pursuing this very skeletal draft framework, the Code of Conduct in the South China Sea, and we're trying to lower the temperature here. So please don't interfere in that process. And that's what the Chinese have been going around saying uh, in the region and internationally. Um, you know, obviously, there, there, there's a lot of limitations to that. Um, if you look at the, the sort of draft framework of the Code of Conduct, as I, I've mentioned and, and you've noted as well, it's pretty skeletal. There's not much substance in there. Um, and we've seen this before. The Chinese were temporarily reducing the temperature in the South China Sea. And then, you know, after potentially the party congress at the end of this year, they could go back to some of their more assertive behavior uh, next year. And they haven't stopped uh, their so-called militarization uh, of the Spratly Islands. So uh, that's sort of the, the broad context. Um, I should point out, I mean, while we're talking about this as a, as a win or a loss for China, there, there are other players involved, too, that are very influential in this, right? So the complicity here um, of several of the other uh, Southeast Asian claimants, particularly Malaysia and Brunei, I mean, these are countries that would prefer, actually, to take a breather from the South China Sea disputes, having had the past few years where this issue has been sort of in, on, on the front burner, right? So this arbitration decision having come out, um, now that the decision has already been made, uh, these countries are taking uh, unilateral actions themselves to kind of support what the ruling is actually promulgated. And the best example of that is Indonesia and its declaration of the North Natuna Sea that we've seen uh, recently. Um, you know, the Vietnamese uh, have, all, have gotten to a spat with the Chinese with respect to energy exploration in the South China Sea. Um, the Philippines is now uh, considering uh, energy exploitation in the Reed Bank, mm -hmm. potentially uh, by, you know, late this, uh, late this year. So uh, what we're seeing is, is kind of a mixed bag here where the Chinese have actually, you know, not lost as much as we, we thought. But the other claimants and, and other extra-regional parties like the United States and the international community uh, haven't won as decisively. And, and the big issue there is, you know, where the Trump administration is in all of this. I think we expected U.S.-South China Sea policy to uh, be a lot tougher under a Hillary Clinton administration uh, in line with a tougher China policy. But that's not what we've seen so far under the Trump administration. I think it suffice to say that you know, both you and I have written about this. Um, this it still isn't clear where the Trump administration is going uh, in terms of U.S.-China relations. Right. And that really has muddied the waters uh, even more in the South China Sea. 
Yeah, I was, um, you know, I, I definitely want to talk about that on this podcast, but I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Indonesia and I actually don't want to forget to mentioning, uh, you know, getting around to that on this podcast. So I just want to ask you, um, so Indonesia, of course, um, is in this weird position where it's not a claimant in the South China Sea uh, in the sense that it doesn't dispute the status of any features. It does have an EEZ dispute with China, part of China's nine dash line claim, uh, which is actually unambiguous this part. Um, is ambiguous like this part is between the two dashes but it collides with indonesia's mm -hmm. uh, natuna sea the part that you know they've renamed now to call the north natuna sea formally um so you wrote a piece about this prashant do you just want to kind of tell us about you know where uh, indonesia which is obviously you know the um first among equals within asean uh it's often referred as such um but where does indonesia uh, now sit on the south china sea yeah, I, I think Indonesia is a, a good example of um, what we see more broadly now among some of the Southeast Asian states. Um, I was in Indonesia earlier this year, um, and the sense there was very much that uh, as much as uh, the ruling had brought about some clarity in a legal sense, um, the initiative on the Indonesian side seemed to be that you know, they would have to take their own set of actions to make sure that it was actually enforced uh, and to ensure that that clarity was actually translated into meaningful action because they saw no sense that Chinese assertiveness um, in the South China Sea would show any signs of easing. And I think the Indonesians, starting late last year, were involved in a series of meetings about you know, declaring this new sort of uh, national map uh, that you were talking about. And they announced the the new North Natuna Sea uh, name designation. Obviously, this is not the first time that this has happened. Um, the the Philippines calls uh, the South China Sea the West Philippine Sea. The Vietnamese call it the East Sea. This is just an, another kind of name designation. But I, I I would argue this is part of a, a broader trend in Indonesia, where the Indonesians are convinced that um, they need to really take their own set of actions to make sure uh, that. This, their um, claims in the South China Sea, uh, more broadly, like you said, they're not really actively a claimant, but essentially nine, the nine dash line does overlap um, with the Natunas, which is a very resource rich area uh, mm -hmm. for Indonesia. So they really want to make sure they're doing this. Um, but the Indonesians are not alone in doing this. I mean, the Malaysians have cracked down on, on encroachments in the, in the maritime sphere. Um, the Vietnamese have gotten a bit tougher um, as well. So uh, you're really seeing this tendency to uh, uh, go it alone in the South China Sea from uh, the Southeast Asian perspective, and, and that's no surprise, right? I mean, within the ASEAN context, under the Philippine chairmanship, uh, what we saw earlier this year was a very, very weak statement um, within the ASEAN context. So I think these ASEAN uh, countries individually see very little gains emerging uh, in the Southeast Asia region-wide basis, so they're trying to take their own actions in the meantime to make sure that their claims are safeguarded. Absolutely. Um, so let's move on and talk a bit about the United States. Um, mm -hmm. So I think you left us with a good thought there about, you know, the expectation versus reality aspect of the Trump administration. Um, you know, I remember us talking about this during the presidential transition when people really had no idea what to expect of Trump's China policy. There were kind of worrying signs that he would um, begin to link the economic and security agenda. And in some ways he's done that. But later we saw him grow really obsessed with North Korea and trade. The South China mm -hmm. Sea kind of fell off the agenda. We saw reports in April saying that requests by Pacific Command for assertive freedom of navigation operations had been sidelined 
sidelined and pushed back on, something familiar to people who are watching U.S. South Asia, uh, South China policy during the Obama administration, of course. Um, but then in May, we see this um, freedom of navigation operation that I think a lot of uh, South China Sea analysts, including myself, had kind of long called for as kind of you know the freedom of navigation uh, that should really set the standard, which was the high seas assertion operation within 12 nautical miles of Mischief Reef. Um, and that's a significant operation because Mischief Reef is the only feature that's both uh, a low tide elevation, or at least legally determined to be a low tide elevation following this 2016 ruling that isn't within 12 nautical miles of any other feature that could possibly be construed as a rock entitled to a 12 nautical mile territorial mm -hmm. sea, which means it's the only feature where the United States can unambiguously um, conduct operations outside of the innocent passage restrictions in UNCLOS and um, really show China that, um, you know, that its maritime entitlements in in the area around these artificial islands are indeed excessive. So the USS Dewey, uh, an Arleigh Burke class uh, guided missile destroyer, asserted that right um, in late May. And this operation came after a long time, right? That the the last freedom of navigation operation was in October 2016. So it had been so, um, more than six months um, for this operation. And then just a month later, we saw USS Statham effectively recreate a previous freedom of navigation operation, which was the USS Curtis Wilbur's operation in January. 2016 within mm -hmm. 12 nautical miles of Triton Island, the Paracel Islands. So um, USS Statham basically redid that operation. Um, and that to me, you know, suggests that we might be starting to see that kind of old idea of a drumbeat of freedom of navigation operations in the South China Sea from the Trump administration. But mm -hmm. with two data points, again, it's too early to say, right? We'd have to really see another one uh, maybe in the next week or two to see if this is going to be a monthly, monthly occurrence from the Trump administration. And the Chinese reaction was pretty standard in both cases. I don't think the mischief brief operation really led to any kind of especially angry reaction from China uh, rhetorically or in practice. Um, you mm -hmm. know, the United States and China met for their first ever um, strategic and uh, diplomatic dialogue um, shortly afterwards. That didn't go particularly well, um, but it didn't seem to derail the broader course of U.S.-China relations. Um, other things are obviously happening behind the scenes on North Korea and trade that have also mattered on that course. Um, but, you know, I think the Trump administration um, if it does stick to freedom of navigation operations as kind of a monthly fact of life in the South China Sea, that's positive, right? I mean, a criticism a lot of people have of these operations is that they turn into these big headline generating kind of in uh, events instead of just kind of being a you know boring kind of legal signaling tool. Um, mm -hmm. Oftentimes people think of FONOPs as these deterrent tools and they really aren't meant to serve as any kind of deterrent. They're simply a, a tool for legal signaling. Um, but you know, what's been your read more broadly? I mean, I, I got pretty granular on the FONOP question, but more broadly when it comes to US policy in the South China Sea, what do we, what should we expect going forward from the Trump administration? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the the insights on uh, FONOPs there are really important because I, I do think that FONOPs uh, tend to be mistaken uh, at times as sort of the only signal on U.S. South China Sea policy and, and sort of the only metric which um, some folks who don't look at the South China Sea as closely as you and I try to judge uh, U.S. South China Sea policy by. But as you correctly pointed out towards the end there, I mean, there are other indicators um, to which we can judge U.S. policy. I mean, the, the main question here, um, apart from the fact that um, besides FONOPs, we've also seen sort of a ramping up of U.S. presence operations more generally that, that sort of does uh, jive with the Trump administration's initial approach following its review is, um, you know, where does the South China Sea fit in terms of 
broader U.S. foreign policy and then broader uh, U.S.-China policy and U.S.-Asia policy, right? I mean, the, the sense that we got from the Obama administration was that the South China Sea uh, issue was important, um, but it wasn't as, you know, sort of vital in the sense of, you know, cooperation that the United States had to have with China in a grand strategic sense. Um, and the biggest manifestation of that was obviously climate change. Um, but there were other issues as well, including, you know, the Iran deal. Um, under the Trump administration, there was that sense initially that this had been replaced by the fact that, well, the South China Sea is important and we do need to do these, these operations and keep up the momentum there. But we're not fundamentally going to focus uh, on this as the main issue in U.S.-China relations because North Korea is really the main urgent threat. And I think, you know, it, it doesn't matter whether this is actually really happening or not. The perceptions in Asia and, and Southeast Asia are, are very strong that, that uh, this is the case and they remain to be today. And I think the, the fundamental question that, that underlines all of this is, is very simple. I think for the Chinese, um, they, they still remain unconvinced that the United States is willing to assume the necessary risks mm -hmm. to impose costs on China that will really hurt it for its actions in the South China Sea that the United States has repeatedly condemned, right? Um, and as long as the Chinese don't see that the United States is willing to assume those risks, um, I don't think that we're going to see the Chinese uh, fundamentally shift strategically from their objective, which is, you know, essentially de facto control of the South China Sea. We don't know when that will happen. We don't know what specific moves uh, they might do. But essentially, you know, that's sort of their objective, and, and they are going along uh, slowly towards achieving it. And I, I don't get the sense that under the Trump administration that we are seeing this, you know, broader strategic shift from the United States in terms of this very tough, uh, heavier approach and substance on the South China Sea beyond these sort of like metrics like, you know, freedom navigation operations or presence operations, maritime security assistance to Southeast Asian states, which... You know, it, they are significant, they're important, they should continue, but ultimately, you know, they're very, very small uh, bits here, um, given the vast asymmetry of capabilities between China and the Southeast Asian states. So I really think that that is the major issue here for, for U.S. policy in the South China Sea. Yeah, and you know, like, um, we also have talked about in the past, just like, where the United States ranks the South China Sea in terms of just broader strategic problems and issues in mm -hmm. in East Asia. Um, and, you know, even more broadly with China, right, you have um, cyber issues, trade issues, North Korea, it's a it's a broad strategic agenda with several pressure points, areas for disagreement. Um, and the South China Sea really comes down to, uh, you know, not only just the Chinese militarization, but also China and the United States have these kind of subtle uh, differences in how they understand freedom of navigation. The Chinese claim Absolutely. to support freedom of navigation. That's a core of their South China Sea rhetoric all the time they say you know it's like well why are you guys harping about uh, freedom of navigation all the time we support freedom of navigation we just interpret that as not meaning that military vessels can conduct innocent passage within the territorial sea or conduct surveillance within the exclusive economic zone mm -hmm. but then the United States says well hey wait a second international law clearly allows for that. Um, and I think, you know, the Chinese, um, everything they're doing in the South China Sea appears like they're trying to dominate it and set up effectively these unsinkable aircraft carriers for them for any uh, future military contingency to keep these critical sea lanes open. Um, these uh, sea lanes that take on important uh, geopolitical importance given their um, centrality for China's own co commercial needs. Um, so there is that aspect of it. Um, but Absolutely. also, you know, I think the United States um, on one level, 
even if you know even if pacific command doesn't buy into this um i think there was this idea that you know commerce for all intents and purposes in the south china sea will continue unfettered even if the chinese you know manage to build up point defenses on these islands and continue to increase their military dominance of the area it's just the mm -hmm. u.s navy's ability to freely patrol these waters where it's operated since the end of the second world war pretty freely that mm -hmm. comes into question yeah and i also think um you know just to add to that um you know that the difference in interpretations of of um you know some of these operations you know the chinese are not alone uh, in sharing that different interpretation with the United States, there are a number of Southeast Asian countries, you know, including Malaysia, that also uh, disagree with the United States. So you're, you're right to point out that this is not just a simple sort of U.S.-China issue or or just what China is doing uh, in the South China Sea. I also think it, it is significant that the Chinese, even though they do reject the ruling, uh, some of their behavior continues to be uh, sort of couched, at least, in these legal technicalities that do try to reference UNCLOS. I mean, it does speak to, we, we started talking about, you know, the ruling and its significance. Um, you know, international law, even for dissenting states, it, it does provide sort of a ground for which people can disagree on those interpretations. Um, so there is that aspect there. Um, I also think, you, you know, you're right to point out um, about, you know, the, the real utility of these outposts that the Chinese um, have set up in the Spratleys. Um, I recall, you know, I, I spoke to a U.S. military official, maybe now it's like three, three four years ago. Um, I remember him telling me, you know, like, if, if you sort of um, expect me to go in um, as, as the United States um, and sort of try to dominate and prevent what the Chinese are doing in the South China Sea, I could very easily do that. The problem is how do you sustain that level of presence and are you willing to get ahead of some of these other claimant states? The United States is not a claimant in the South China Sea disputes um, and some of these actors in the South China Sea obviously do have claimants, it's, um, you know, Malaysia, um, Vietnam and the Philippines and some of these actors sometimes are as concerned about these freedom navigation operations uh, as China. So there really are a lot of complexities here um, that uh, prevent the United States from taking a firmer position on the South China Sea, and those tend to uh, sort of cloud or obstruct policymakers when they try to make a clear decision about these things. So yeah, and you know, like to close out uh, today's conversation, uh, you know, coming back to that question of has China won? Um, I mean, look, I mean, my impression, sadly, is that uh, in the end, I think, yes, that the Chinese will end up sealing in the advantages that they've already accomplished in the South China Sea. They will continue to militarize. Um, they will probably start conducting um, their own you know, military drills and operations with regularity using these islands. Uh, they haven't done that yet, even though they have been militarizing and improving mm -hmm. the civilian presence on these islands. Uh, and, for South Asia, uh, and for Southeast Asian claimant states, I mean, I think... You know, for them, too, the agenda with China is broader um, and they will have to learn to live with these countries. I mean, uh, um, live with these facilities in the South China Sea and live with a, a new kind of, you know, Chinese lake, as it's often referred to. And we've seen this out of ASEAN. We've seen this out of the South China, um, um, out of, you know, all of their deliberations on the South China Sea that effectively, I think um, that kind of new reality is setting in and the agenda with China is starting to shift. I mean, there are kind of wild cards here again, like we talked about last time. 
we don't know who the next leader of the Philippines is going to be after Duterte. You know, he's not going to be reelected and, st- and sit around forever. So mm-hmm. um, that could potentially change things um, since this ruling will exist. I mean, this is what I noted in a column um, recently for the South China Morning Post, which is that this ruling, even if it, you know, even if we all forget about it, even if the Trump administration begins to lose interest in it and the Southeast Asian claimant states simply refer to it arcanely as legal and diplomatic processes in their statements, it will exist as a fact, right? Um, and mm-hmm. it's, it's always there for future governments to use again. China, um, yep. if and when the time comes. So that's kind of, you know, one thing to kind of look forward to. So maybe when we do this podcast again in a year, um, reflecting on, uh, I guess, the two-year anniversary of the ruling, we might have um, a, a different perspective on that. But for now, I think that's kind of the hopeful silver lining to end on. Yep. All right. Well, uh, thanks for joining me, Prashant. Good to be with you. Yeah. And uh, for our listeners, if you like the podcast, uh, definitely do uh, subscribe. And if you're a subscriber, but you haven't left us a rating yet on iTunes, please do so. That really helps get the word out about the show. And if there's anything you'd like to hear us discuss on the podcast that we haven't gotten around to yet, please do drop us a note um, either on Twitter or email, and we'd be happy to include it on the agenda going forward. Thank you for listening.